Many times we feel paralyzed by fear and body hatred. In order to feel better about ourselves and live the life we really want to manifest, we have to own up to our difficult feelings and self-sabotaging thoughts and behaviors. We all enter this world naked, and now it's time to feel good naked. No matter what your body size or your life circumstances, this is Feel Good Naked Radio, and your host is Lar Redmond. On this program, Lar will help you become more embodied, self-empowered, and mindful to take charge of whom you really are and to live the life you deserve to live. Now, here's your host, Laura Redmond. Welcome back to Feel Good Naked Radio. I am your host, Laura Redmond, and I am so excited to have back the amazing Carol Ferris, who is an astrologer. This is her third time with me on the program. We tend to get extraordinary results when she's with us because the education that she offers and the insights that we can gain by listening to her are way helpful for becoming more embodied, understanding your story, figuring out what your meaning is on the planet, and what you're really here to do, which is the point of this show. For any of you who missed Carol Ferris's other interviews with me, Carol is an astrologer with four decades of experience. She is an adjunct, an adjunct professor at the Portland School of Astrology, and she has a full-time consulting practice. Her 2013 master's thesis from Merrillhurst University was based on her study of classical Chinese medicine philosophy and was titled The Skies, Body, Constellations, and Medicine. Welcome back to the show, Carol Ferris. Good morning. I'm very glad to be here again, Laura. Well, I wanted to get into a bunch of different things with you today, and and one of the places I had hoped we could start is I recently was talking to someone who had had a consultation with you, and she used a beautiful word, which was to say that mapping, when she was with you in session, she was able to understand the mapping of her story, and that although she had done many years of therapy and continues to do so, there was something in the way that you mapped out her particular astrological story that gave her an understanding of herself that she had never had in 20 plus years of therapy. So I thought it might be interesting to start today by just giving the listeners an understanding of how horoscope is story for each of us. Oh, thanks. That's it. it, It's a lovely question. Um, And I'll give um, as simple an answer as I can. A map, a horoscope is a map. Horo means hour and scope is chart or map. A map of the hour. So it's a picture of a geography and a light condition and a season. It's a map of a place and a time, a moment that's not like any other place. It isn't that we don't experience place and time in terms of rhythms and expectable, repeatable experiences. So the sun is always in the same place on June 20th every year. It's at a certain height in the sky. But every June 20th is not like every other June 20th. So a horoscope, a map, is a picture of joining the terrain 
Um, I, I just was at a wonderful conference where the speaker, David Abram, who is the author of a remarkable book, The Spell of the Sensuous, and his latest book, Becoming Animal, was talking about um, one of my favorite topics, which is a, a ways of knowing. How do, how do we know what we know? And how did we used to know our world? How did we read our world? How did we see it? How did we smell it? How did it come to us? What were we accustomed to knowing? And when did our language and our abstraction of our world begin to lift out of the geography and the time onto mark-making, into symbols, into, onto paper? When did we as human beings begin to abstract our way of knowing away from our ground of being and into our minds and, and more into the structures that we created for each other. And so I think that astrology, all forms of divination really, whether you're throwing the yijing or you're cracking oracle bones over a fire or you're looking at a map, it, it really, it, reading any map, including diagnostic models, I mean, a part of Chinese medicine is reading the body, which is reading the pulse. So I think of the horoscope as a, um, a map of something that we know. It's not about planets out there far away from us. It's not about how things that are external to us are moving us around. It's a map of something we actually know. We know what it's like when it's cold. We know what it's like when it's summer. We know what it's like when it's sweet. So a horoscope is a picture of something that we can know about our terrain, about the place that we're born, about the season that we're born, and how um, it rises for us as an individual very specifically in that time and place. So it's a way of knowing, it's a mapping. It's mapping something, how you, how one steps in and um, becomes a part of the territory. And when you're reading someone's horoscope and you're knowing them for the first time through that map of their astrological chart, natal chart, do you feel as if their personality jumps off that chart and you know something about them that maybe they know, maybe they don't? But is it that specific when you're at the level that you are understanding astrology? Well, I think personality, um, I'm not sure that I would use the word personality to describe what what is pictured in the map because I find that people are way more complicated than um, a personality, that, that what, what appears to me in the mapping and that correlates to uh, how a person presents themselves. Um, I, I used to have clients that said, I'm psychic. I, I don't think I'm psychic, but if you sit down with, with human beings every day, day after day for many years, you begin to be able to read them as well as their map. And what the map shows is incredibly lovely, complex patterns of habit and grasp and repetition. Um, and some of the habits are beneficial and harmonious and compatible and lead to 
success and progress and uh, a happy relationship in the in the in the real world and some habits and patterns and ways of self-reflection that that are not they're not curses and the, the the horoscope isn't a picture of a curse or of a blessing it's a picture of a complex of natures that and we could say learn themselves through practice and repetition over time so often um, a person will have incredibly complex sets of behaviors, some of which work very well for them, some of them of which they're very much aware, some of which they're barely aware. I mean, the, the horoscope will show as much what a person does not know about themselves, what uh, some aspect of their character or the, a quality that's hard to see, that's consciousness resistant, that um, was never cultivated or tended to, not only by the individual, but by the family or the culture, that a, a person will have a, a quality or a characteristic that the family or the culture finds difficult or easy to repress or not palatable. And that will show up as much as what's easy to do. What's hard to do and what's easy to ignore and what's easy to sublimate will show up in a horoscope pattern as much as what's successful and workable. So that's, I'm, I'm sorry, it's a kind of a long-winded answer to the question, can you see personality? Um, I, I guess if I had maybe my own more expanded definition of personality, I would say that yes, the horoscope shows that, but I think we're much more complicated than just personality. Well, it's interesting because as you're answering the question, I too am contemplating what is personality, you know, and and I think in my own ideas, I would say it's a collection of all those aspects of experience, influence, culture, family, and I don't know what else I would add to that, but I think that knowing what you've taught me in astrological terms has given me a better understanding of my personality from different points of view, whether family, relationship, career. Um, so it's interesting to think about what personality really means. What, what would you say personality means to you? Well, um, I guess part of what I what my current thinking is is that what the horoscope shows is um, the incredible complexity of nature, and certainly when I was a younger astrologer, I I focused myself what I would call almost exclusively on persons, <laughs> on humans, and I tended to read the entire horoscope. Even though the horoscope and the history of horoscopic thinking, never mind horoscopes, the, the history of astrological thinking is very much a language that includes elemental natures, it includes animals, it includes uh, geography and terrain, it includes what I think of as weather, it includes natural landscape uh, concepts like ocean and river and mountain. And um, and so the longer I studied astrology, the more I practiced. And, and certainly after my introduction to classical Chinese medical um, philosophy and thinking, I began to think about a person, not just as a person, <laughs> 
Um, and I think maybe that's why I'm, I'm struggling a little bit with the idea of what a personality is, because I think that there are so many things about uh, us human beings, about we human beings, where our beha- maybe our behaviors and our characters and our grasp are, are an, a very sophisticated integration of things that are not particularly human. So I don't know if we, you know, if you think about the modern world of um, thinking about the personness or the personality of, of the elements, I'm, I'm thinking now of the wonderful Maori um, breakthrough in New Zealand where they successfully um, gave a river personness so it now has legal standing in New Zealand to to challenge administrative and uh, political laws about its future. Um, so I, I think that that kind of thinking, I don't think that's Luddite thinking. I don't think that's regressive thinking. But but it's like, so what is the personality of the river? What's the personness of the river? Or you think about the Supreme Court saying that corporations are persons. And so I... I, I think that that idea that humans embody um, very complex structures that are not limited just to being a human being, I think maybe, um, I think that, that the great gift of being a human being is our capacity to uh, experience the world beyond our, our own um, species limitation in a way, I guess. Yeah. Oh, totally. And and now that I'm I'm enjoying thinking this in a deeper context with you, I was realizing how much personality my dogs have had. Like they have been more interesting, um, very clear communicative beings than a lot of human beings have been in my life. <laughs> and so when I was just watching this footage a few days ago of Jane Goodall, it was this beautiful video that appeared in one of my feeds. And she was saying that she learned love from her dog. Like that was, and, and I thought, oh my word, so did I. And then David White, the poet and philosopher, speaks of place as being as powerful as people. So maybe maybe the the word personality is a little bit misleading because the word person is part of the word, but it is a fun word to sort of dissect and think about. Well, and I you know it's certainly just raising it as a question it's the matrix in which the experience happens. But but I um, and I, I love your reference to a dog. I, I if I will if I could I'll just take a little detour here, please. Um, in in classical Chinese medical thinking, and the reason that astrology and that thinking has such affinity, it's the idea that um, that not all times are like all other times. And not all places are like all other places. And so if you know a time and you know a place, then you know something specific about its nature that is not like other times and places. That includes your body. And that includes the cosmos. That includes the rhythm and seasons that when we see these stars above this mountain, we know it's this time of year and we see that nature is coming into bloom or we see that nature is is declining and turning inward and um, and that 
life is being maintained at a very deep level. So that whole idea of what is both the cosmic body and the individual body, the human body, what what are the relationships, what are the seasonal physical relationships of those of those times? And in that, the Chinese zodiac, which is not strictly speaking a zodiac, um, our zodiac, the Western zodiac, the zodiac signs of the constellations, Aries, Taurus, Gemini, and so on, are very much related to the sky and to stars in the sky, to the fixed stars in the sky. The Chinese zodiac, the animals, the rooster, the pig, the dog, the horse, are much are not related to specific constellations in the sky. They're references to um, almost more to seasons of time on Earth. So that every to as, as it says in Ecclesiastes, to everything there is a season, and a part of how classical Chinese medicine thinks about the seasons is what are the seasons of the body and and where are these seasons located down to, speaking of a map, a body map of the idea that your body is a country and that the major organ systems are the officers of the of the country and that when the country is, when all of the officers are doing the job they're supposed to do, then the country will be run. When when all when your body is working well and when it's working in alignment with seasons and place, you will be healthy. So every animal of the Chinese zodiac is correlated with a body or a, an organ complex in the body. And the dog the, is associated with the pericardium, with the heart protector, with the, the incredible covering of the heart. And it's associated with the time of year when the days are getting shorter and the nights are growing long and the temperature is dropping and the harvest is over and has been weighed and measured and stored and nature is turning inward and is needing protection. The heart is needing protection. It's not turning out and opening. It's turning inward and down. And so the dog is associated not only with that time of year, but with that part of the body. And um, and I, it wasn't until I had the uh, wonderful, began to uh, understand dogs because of my uh, grandson's dog, who when she would come and stay with me and would be sitting with me when I would have clients who would uh, come. When we were talking business or in a way talking things more formally or more about timing questions, she wouldn't be very involved. But when the tone of the consultation shifted to something more emotional or something that, that clearly had emotional depth or meaning for the person, she'd come over and lie down by their feet. Wow. And um, I had a wonderful practitioner here who, when that happened, he pointed down at her and he grinned at me and he said, heart protector. <laughs> and so I think about that, that the Chinese understood, I think, correctly that this animal nature, we have it in us, too. We have the capacity to love and to, to not only protect our own hearts, but to be protective toward the hearts of others. And that it's a really important function for our well-being, both to protect and be protected. And so that, the, the incorporation of animal nature 
in terms of understanding how the whole body works, our animal body, that we, that we are animals, that we move and breathe, and that, that, that we are a part of that um, whole kingdom is really important to remember when we think about um, that we're participating in seasons that affect the animal body. Mm, that's so interesting. In fact, I just had a client yesterday who said to me, how can I open my heart when it feels completely shut down? And I thought, that is just a brilliant question. And when you were just speaking about the intuitive nature of the dog and the heart, I often wonder if really to keep our heart open requires having faith in who we really are and being willing to take the journey to learn what that is and who that might be within you, as opposed to being told what you should or um, are to do or feel and having it not resonate in a spiritual nature with soul and self. Yeah, well, and I do think I th- uh, in in again if I if we return to the Chinese system, the uh, and the officials of the country of the body, the heart is the emperor, and that's not a very big stretch <laughs> for for any of us. You know, our, it, no son, no story. <laughs> we're, if we're if we're going to have a story, it has to have a heart to the story. And I say this uh, often in the readings I do, um, because it, because it never ceases to astound me. Actually. Literally, the sun is four and a half billion tons of hydrogen and helium exploding per second. Wow. So it's a huge burning. And it's it, it won't go out for a long, long time. It is going to have to burn down to the final, you know, high test element iron before it burns out. So that that potent radiant, stabilizing, um, gravity-producing part of of the story of our solar system, of this system that we're in, it's the heart of our story. So in Chinese thinking and in astrological thinking, the sun is the emperor. It's the heart of the story. And in classical philosophy, the job of the emperor, the job of the heart is to remember oneness with the divine. And there are many, many pictures from uh, Zhou and Han dynasty and um, warring states and a little bit later in Chinese history, so uh, around 600 BCE to around 350 AD um, CE. There are pictures of the emperor in the Big Dipper with people bowing to him from below the Big Dipper. And it's a picture of what the Chinese call um, Tianming, the heavenly mandate, that that a true emperor, a true leader, a true heart of the society and the culture modeled remembering where you come from. Um, there are a lot of directions for the emperor that he's supposed to sit under the Big Dipper and contemplate oneness, and that that that's a model for the people to to be grateful for and mindful of of our source. That that's the only job of the heart. Now, what happens, of course, with our hearts 
is we lust after people. Uh, emperors want to conquer neighbors. Emperors want concubines. Emperors want want power. And so when the heart strays away in the Chinese model, when the heart, when the emperor strays from the primary mission of oneness, that's when things go awry in the whole system. When the emperor says to the prime minister, the lungs and the general, the liver, I want to make war on my neighbors, then, then these officials have to marshal all the other organ systems and all the resources of the body to make war. And then there's that results in an imbalance. So I think the idea, it isn't that I don't think that it isn't the job of the heart to be open in love. I do. Um, but I also think that it, it, that implicit in that and the idea of the heart protector, for example, is that um, we also have to protect the heart and that we have to that we have to in, to echo what you said, we have to in some way know and trust ourselves enough to know when we are loving in oneness and when the heart needs to be protected and closed, and that there are appropriate times for both of those experiences, for all of those experiences. Oh, that's so true. And I think I think the absoluteness either way is what to be conscious of. And I was grateful that this woman could say that her heart felt fully closed. So whether it's fully closed or fully open, the key word being fully is probably not serving the need of the fully realized individual. Yeah. I, well, I, you know, we're, we're uh, this, uh, just to reiterate an earlier point, we're very complicated and, um, and, Different environments, different terrains, different weather systems uh, ask different responses and uh, commitments and entanglements from us. And so um, I, I sometimes think the easy, you know, it's very easy to just sit sit under the Big Dipper and remember one. Just with the <laughs> yeah. of it, it solves a lot of other kind of, yeah. of problems. Yeah. And if that were the only thing we had to do, it wouldn't. Is, is to be the heart of the system, to live only in the heart of the system, to not live in the belly or to live in the, in the genitals or to live in the muscles. That we, it, it, it would be a much different story, but we're, we are who we are. Yeah, yeah. And, and you brought light into the discussion a moment ago with reference also earlier to the, the solstice, the summer solstice, June 20th. Yes. And I'd love for you to explain to us just really the meaning behind all of that, because there is emphasis culturally, we will often know, oh, it's the summer solstice or the winter solstice. What does that really mean in terms of time right now? And, and that being the time, the summer solstice. Well, <clears throat> I'll, I'll start with my current understanding of light. Um, I'm not a scientist. <laughs> My husband used to tease me. He'd say, the reason you became an astrologer is because you have a slender grasp of science. <laughs> and I would say that um, that it's actually astrology that has led me to the sciences. It's, it has certainly led me to a much deeper study of astronomy and, and certainly a much deeper study of of um, uh, not just of cosmology, but of the study of universal principles and um, led me into uh, physics and led me into 
uh, physical sciences in a way that I certainly never was interested in as a younger person. It's really astrology that has led me to all of those things. But I say that because I want to qualify the comments that I'm going to make about the nature of light. I went to a remarkable lecture by Anthony Doerr at the University of Portland, who brings um, wonderful writers in their uh, annual uh, writing series. And you want to keep an eye on their website because these lectures are offered for free. So Anthony Doerr was the author of the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, All the Light We Cannot See. And by way of introduction of why had he picked that title, he talked about... um, looking at electron microscope photographs. His brother is a scientist and had introduced him to looking at the world through electron microscopes. And the magnification of um, a fly's eye, or (laughs) he he had a picture of dental floss with gradu in it. You know, he was talking about what we can't see. He, He wanted to talk about what we can't see. And he observed that of the the light spectrum of the electromagnetic light spectrum, the human eye sees one ten trillionth. Wow. And that's what inspired the title, All the Light We Cannot See. Ah. And I was, as my Scottish friends say, I was just gobsmacked when I heard <laughs> Because here I am thinking about the sun and the moon and the light of the sun and the moon. And and here is all this light. Here are all these waves. Here's all this energy, this bath of, of light that we all live in, of which we can see only a frac- a tiny, tiny fraction. And I, I, I took it a little bit step further in my own thinking, thinking about rhythms of light and dark from the winter solstice to the summer solstice, and certainly the lunar cycles of dark moon to full moon to dark moon. Because, in the, in, again, to refer to the Chinese, light is yang energy. It's pure, moving energy. It has no form. It just is And yin is the dark form that contains the yang. And and one of the interesting sayings to me about light, dark, yin, yang is that yang without yin is a ghost and yin without yang is a corpse. So I think about this in terms of, of how much light we have how much light that we do see the light that we do see never mind all the light that's moving us that we don't see the light that we do see the agents of that light in the natural world are the sun and the moon the burning the potent powerful heart of the story of the sun and the moon which carries and receives and in old definitions of light translates the sun's light from one body to another so Light, mo- light is moving energy. So the lighter it gets, visible light as well as ambient light, the lighter it gets, the more movement there is, the more heat there is, the more growth there is, the more expansion there is. So uh, here we are approaching the summer solstice and there's more and more and more light. 
And even with the kind of climate change that we're experiencing, and certainly the kind of spring and summer we've had here in Portland, Oregon, which has been so very wet and so very cold, everything responds to the light. So that when we get to the summer solstice, we will have three days where we will have because the sun is at the highest point, it will be in the sky in relationship to this latitude and longitude. And in Oregon, in Portland, at the 45th latitude north, our, our solstice will be approximately 15 hours of light and nine hours of dark. And then the days will begin to get shorter. And one of the great paradoxes of the cycle of light and dark, certainly in terms of, of growing things, in a way you don't get the harvest of what it was that was seeded in the deep dark of winter until it begins to get dark again. So even as the days begin to shorten in late June and July and August, even if it seems to be hotter, we're actually we have less light. And so the paradox, a harvest as it begins to darken. So the, if we have maximum light, we have the most movement. And it isn't just that humans think about vacations and shorts and sandals and, and, um, and being open to the light, although that's certainly part of it, but that everything in, in us opens and responds and is moved by and is grown by and is brought to consciousness with more light. So the zodiac sign that is associated with the solstice in the Western um, system is the sign Cancer. And you read a lot of interesting symbolism around the Cancer, the crab, this time of year being the exoskeleton that protects the delicate interior. But the people who created this language, who were looking at the sky, they weren't looking at pieces of paper or ephemerides or computer screens. They were living with the sky. They, if they looked at where the sun was in relationship to their horizon at the same point, say due south every day, every day, every day from the winter solstice, the sun would be marginally higher in the sky every day, every day, until finally there would be a point at which the sun would not ascend any higher in the sky. And it was at that point, in fact, that it began to go back the way it came. And so they called the zodiac sign cancer because the sun moved like a crab sideways and backwards. <laughs> so it, the name is associated with that point in the year when light that stabilizes and moves and grows already at its maximum point begins to descend again. And so there are implications for us emotionally and psychologically about holding something very, very tenderly at this time of year, knowing that it's going to change. It's so interesting to me because you just said something that I've always wondered about and been somewhat confused about, which is that when the summer solstice is approaching, it feels like the days are only going to continue to expand and be lengthy and long and light. And similar as the winter solstice approaches, there's no way to believe that the days are getting longer and that there is more light. Yeah. It's almost um, counterintuitive to what the body and the senses are picking up on 
or all the light we cannot see is being confused by the light that we can see. Yes, and and how, the uses that we make of it. I mean, some of the some of the oldest uh, symbolism of the zodiac signs, certainly the the symbolism of the signs of summer, uh, Cancer, Leo, Virgo, um, are very much about something coming to fullness. Um, then, then in a way, being birthed from fullness into individuality, the transition from Cancer to Leo, and then the harvesting and the tending to of that which has been given birth to, and the, and the, and then wh- what use will we make of what it is that we've done? So it's very h- hard as modern people, I think. We, we can turn the lights on anytime we want. We, we stay, we can have lights on at two in the morning. Our computer screens, our, our instruments are humming and glowing and blinking in the dark 24 mm. seven. And so in a way we have um, divorced ourselves or we've abstracted ourselves with our habits and our preferences, which is that we want the light on all the time. And this is sort of referencing our last conversation when we were talking about the dark and why it is so hard for our culture to come to terms with darkness. And so I think a, a very long evolution, you know, I you can't blame the Industrial Revolution for everything, but, you know, a certain desire to be productive, to live a certain way, to, to um, be successful, to be well a certain way, that um, there, there's a preference for the light, and um, and so that we can, we create environments, we create in mental environments, we create um, acculturated environments that try and capture or prolong or hold a situation that that isn't isn't um, permanent. Light changes, light diminishes, and moves towards darkness. So if you would, please go back to what you were saying. This is a good time for people to sort of hold and um, expose their own tender understanding of this now, this time, this summer solstice period in the calendar. What would be either a ritual or something that you might guide listeners to honor during this specific time well one of the ways that i th- i think about cancer is i think about it as a full-term pregnancy um mm. uh, irrespective of gender or sexual preference or anything else it's this idea that we are bringing something to fullness and that in order for it to reach its its maximum growth it needs protection that's it's it's interesting that if we think about the sun as the heart of the year, we have this paradox. I think that's why the Chinese think about the job of the emperor is to remember oneness with the divine is because summer and all that light is a point where you're, you're getting very close to it and that it deserves, that, that, that there's a certain, a sort of ritual respect for light, never mind one's personal uh, religious preferences or spiritual practices or spiritual beliefs. So I think of cancer time, of the solstice time, as um, tenderly holding something 
um, that is going to be public, that is coming to the light, that is coming to its ultimate development and is going to be born in, and that's the symbolism of Leo, which which succeeds Cancer in the Western Zodiac, that out of the tenderness and protection comes the golden child. And I think that it's because, um, and I include myself in this, the culture hurries us along and thinks what's next, what's next, what's next. Our, our calendars are full. We look forward to things. We're always looking forward to things. That this time of year, um, we might do well to stop and be tender towards what we are trying to bring to fruition and let it ripen completely. Um, and and so whatever it, whatever a personal ritual is, it, this has nothing to do with patience. It's not about being about patiently waiting. It, and it doesn't really have anything to do with a deliberate desired outcome of, well, I want it to be this good, so I'll sit on it until this day. It really has to do with having some quiet um, internal respect for what's tr- for for the life that is trying to come forward. And certainly with other astrological signatures of these days of this 2000 year, this year, 2017, um, Almost uh, everyone I sit down with, and, um, and and I include myself in this again, is some old story that we have had about ourselves for a very long time, both as individuals and as a collective, is dying mm-hmm. and won't serve anymore. It had its place. It was important, structurally important, protectively important, habitually important. But something is is dying there's something, our, our idea about who we are as Americans, our idea about who we are as people, and and what is what can not replace it, but uh, if you will, out of the compost of that death and that loss, is already there is something else that's seeded that new life is trying to grow. And so instead of trying to kind of slam forward and make something grow that is very immature or or just nascent, just coming into being, finding some way to hold still and have respect for what it is that wants to grow forward in its time, I think is really very much a message not only for this particular uh, time of year, the solstice, but generally speaking for where we are uh, in the collective. That is so beautiful. I love the idea of the metaphoric pregnancy, so that if anybody was in their ninth month of pregnancy and they were holding the silence and sort of slowing down and feeling what might be, it's almost as if you're giving birth to something brand new, which is matching with the time of 2017 and all the ways we've had to recalculate the story that we are now getting rid of, letting go of, and starting with something very new, very hopeful, very different. Yes. Yes. So I need help with the Saturn in Sagittarius. Um <laughs> Can you help us all understand what that needs to, how that needs to be uh, understood within our own brains so we can be a little bit more um, flexible with how inflexible it makes us feel? (laughs) 
Well, um, you know, I, I have given this a lot of thought. And of course, Saturn is only going to be in Sagittarius until December of this year, mid-December of this year. So so we want to um, get the full benefit of, I think, of its um, of this season. If we think of, of a planet traveling through a constellation as a season, not as something out there in the skies, but as an experience of time, of, of time, of how we are living in a time. So I'll do two brief definitions and then we'll put them together. Saturn is, it's yes, it's the name of a planet. Yes, it was the name of a god. His name, his Greek name was Kronos before it was Saturn, which of course is the root word for chronology or time. He's father time. And so he's the, those words, father and time, are implicit in the definition of, of Saturn as a moving force in human experience. So I think of Saturn as that aspect of my nature of your nature, of, of, the, of our, uh, our world's nature. It's the force for creating structures of value and meaning. And there is something in each of us that gets up every day and says, if I'm going to make a contribution to the world, I can't do everything. That means I have to limit myself, it means I have to choose. And out of everything, out of all the structures that my family presents to me, the, the Saturnian family structure, dad says, choose this, mom says, don't do that. The school principal says, this matters. The credential is a Saturnian credential, graduation, diplomas, what we earn. So Saturn is the force at work in our world, in our inner world, and in our collective world that creates structures of value and meaning. It's where we say, this matters, this doesn't. Sagittarius is a, is a constellation, the archer, the centaur with his drawn bow and his eye on the target. It's the time of year between late November, around November 20th, 21st, to the winter solstice, December 20th, 21st. The days are getting shorter and shorter and shorter, the nights longer and longer. And all of the life that has that summer has brought that has been harvested and weighed and measured and stored has been, new life has been created in the dark, the seeds for the future. So Sagittarius is aiming, light aiming in the dark. It's the light inside the dark. But it's not formed. It's ideas and possibilities. And it's fire burning inside the dark. So I think of Sagittarius. I think of the archer and his bow and his quiver full of arrows symbolizing the longing of the seeds of light to come to fruition in high summer in Cancer Leo Virgo. So Sagittarius is, is famously and classically associated with restless seeking and searching. The aiming for something, looking for something, the journey for something, the journey for truth, the journey for higher understanding, the journey for better solutions, 
imagination and bringing images forward, but not yet in form. So here we have a basic paradox that we are all living in, and we've been living in it for about two years now because Saturn has been in Sagittarius about that long. How do you make forms, how do you create structures of value and meaning out of flying, burning imagination and philosophy? Hmm. Everything in us as human beings wants certainty and things we can put our hand on and touch and name and taste and own. So a period of time in which we are called to restlessly search without finding makes us really wiggly. (laughs) And the great gift of this time is one of the ways I think about it is imagination. And I don't mean fantasy or making things up or that things aren't real. It's picture making. It's like, What can you imagine for yourself? What pictures could you make? What pictures would you make of what you would like your world to to be? Not, by God, my world better be this way right now, but where will I go? What would it look like? What would it smell like? How long would it take? What is it composed of? Is it good? Is it right? Is it fair? Whom does it serve? Does it only serve me or does it have values that extend beyond what it is that's good for me? So the form giver, Saturn, is restless and testing and full of opportunity and imagination. And what I have been saying to myself as well as to all of my clients is the great gift of this time is imagination. With not burdened by, in a way, budgets or outcomes or will it work. It's, it's letting things grow and develop in a really rich way. What would these seeds look like long term when they grow up? So sometimes we're firing to the left and sometimes we're firing backwards. And sometimes we're firing to the right and forward. And sometimes we'll keep aiming at the same thing over and over and over again. It's like, I'm sure I want to do this. I'm sure I want to go here. But the psychological effect of a time like this is such uncertainty and such, especially self-uncertainty, this, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know where I want to go. I was so sure that this was the direction I wanted to go. And now it turns out I'm not sure if this is the direction that I want to go, to which I have said to everybody, trust your picture-making process because when we get to the end of this year and 2018, 19, 20, when Saturn, the form giver, enters his own kingdom, Capricorn, Earth and structure, we'll be really glad we reflected so long with such imagination about possibilities because we will then feel compelled to make a choice. So interesting. And I feel that goes hand in hand with the other angle that you presented, which is to own the time of now with this metaphoric pregnancy, like the nine months that we're now into that metaphor, knowing we have the Saturn Sagittarius structure till December 
it feels like the perfect time to just allow the unknown to create the imagination's form in whichever way it may calculate or construct. Yes. Yeah. Let the heart work. I mean, here's an example of the emperor, you know, holding still and, and staying close to source. Will it be this? Will it be this? Will it be this? Mm. Carol, whenever you talk to us, I feel so grateful because you you do give me, and I know a lot of listeners because I hear from them, a sense of spiritual understanding, soulful language, and with that, a mapping of all of our incarnations as we may be living them with a certain understanding that we don't get from anyone like you give it. So I want to just say thank you for that, which you offer. It's, it's awesome. Um, and I want people to know how to uh, find you if they would like to do a consultation with you wherever they may be located. Well, um, if they'll go to my website, it's carolferrisastrology.com. And there's there's a, an explanation of my philosophy, and there are some podcasts and some a little bit of my thinking, and um, and then there's a way to contact me through the website. And you work with people on Skype if they're far, far away from your I, location? I do Skype. I do Zoom. I do WebEx. I do FaceTime and the old-fashioned phone. I have a phone. Oh, it's so great because I know a lot of people have reached out to you from other locations and really good to remind anyone listening that Carol can work with you wherever you may be. And the other thing I want to ask as we're closing is just if you could give us just one sort of vision that you feel is a a very powerful embodied vision that you're using right now in your own life, what would that be? Um, That that we can trust our hearts to um, take good care of us. Ah, that's so perfectly in line with the tagline for this show, which is that you complete you. And I want to thank you again for making this time available for all of us and the benefit that you bring. Thank you, Carol Ferris. Thanks, Laura. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Feel Good Naked Radio with Laura Redmond. Please join us live again next Thursday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until our next show, be you and feel great in your own skin.